This is Dan Gore. Welcome to the Icons Podcast. For more than 30 years, I've been involved in the art of female impersonations and celebrity impersonations. I've worked with some of the most amazing performers in our history. I've traveled around the world, producing and directing shows for corporate events, casting for TV and movies. But most impressive of all is getting to know some of the most amazing people ever to grace our industry. Best known to many as the art of drag. I've worked with and become friends with some of history's finest that have paved the way for many of today's current and upcoming performers. This is our chance to learn more about our drag history. This is Icons, Incredible Creations on Stage podcast. Hey there, it's Dan Gorn. Welcome to the Icons podcast. This week, I have the opportunity to talk to someone that I've known for over three decades. He currently works for me in the Oscars Cabaret, and I've never had this opportunity to actually talk to him and interview him and learn a lot more about his personal life and his performance life. So excited to be sitting with Mr. Tommy Rose. Welcome, Tommy. Thank you, Dan. I'm honored to be here. We have known each other since Lacage Day's L.A., so that does go back over 30 years. And I've never had an opportunity to talk to you just one-on-one besides just being in the whole show yeah. aura every time. I see you. So. We've always been in show mode, and there's it's the current work. Yes, so, yes. So true. Thank you for being a part of this. You, well, I know you've I'm been thrilled. doing drag a long time, and that's what we're, <laughs> we're going to learn about all that uh, in this interview. So first and foremost, tell me. I know you're not a native Californian. You're from. I was born and raised in Florida, and uh, born over on the eastern side, um, on the Melbourne, over by Melbourne Beach, and uh, actually came to L.A. in 1972 for about a year uh, when my stepfather was going through some schooling with his company, and he brought all of us out, and uh, it was an interesting experience, and we went back to Florida and then relocated to Central Florida in Orlando, and uh, was there until I left the state in 1978 and found myself in San Diego initially. So, and then I've been in California and then around the world ever since, but California has always been my base. And when you were growing up, do you find that you were attracted to show business or flashy clothing or did you see anything on TV that sparked an oh interest? Oh my God, if it if it sparkled, I wanted it. I just, I just love the whole idea. First of all, I love theater. Um, I was in choir. Um, I was at every concert. I loved to sing. Um, I acted in high school and uh, did all kinds of productions. So theater has always been on my back. I've loved musical theater, especially. I love drama. And my mother was a fan of the old um, movies from like the 30s and 40s, the film noir era. And she kind of instilled in me a love of those old films. And that's really where I kind of got my theatrics from. But a lot of family members were also in the entertainment industry earlier in their life. My grandmother actually was in, uh, in vaudeville. Um, and all of my aunts, um, my mother is uh, was the middle of six girls. And they had kind of like the their own little girls singing group and church choir and all that. So I grew up with music around the house. Yeah. And then when you, as a child, do you ever, do you remember ever looking at the TV and seeing something that didn't possibly look right, like a man in drag? That's or? what started it for me. I had always been kind of interested when I would see shows and see comedies and like Uncle Milty, you know, when he was on um, different TV shows and on Ed Sullivan. But what did it for me was my junior year of high school when I came rushing home to see an episode of Mike Douglas because his special guest was my female comic idol, Miss Toadie Fields, who I just adored. And after she did her segment, he said, stick around, we'll be right back with a surprise guest. So when we came back uh, from the commercial break, he said, please welcome Betty Davis. And the curtain opened, and the audience lost their mind. It was not Betty Davis, but it was Charles Pierce in full drag as Betty Davis. And this is in 1975. And to see something like that, on television was 
Did you know who Betty Davis was at that time? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah. Betty because Davis, Joan mother? Crawford. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. of all those wonderful old movies. I mean, I, my favorite films of hers were um, uh, Dead Ringer with Carl Malden's, my all-time favorite Betty Davis movie, and then Mr. Skeffington. So I knew all those old classic films. But to see a man come out and impersonate her was just fascinating. And I remember turning to my mom and said, I want to do that. She just looked at me. And I had one of those, like, oh, shit moments. It's like, oh, that was supposed to be my inside voice. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember saying, I'm going to meet him. And she said, I have no doubt you probably will. And years later, not only did I meet him, but he became a mentor and a very dear friend up until the day he passed away. So at that point back when you see him on TV... You tell your mother you want to do something like this, and what is it that you pursue at that time? Do you just want to be in drag, or do you want to be like to look like Betty Davis? Well, I knew I was gay, so I was kind of like drawn to the gay clubs, and there was kind of like a gay hangout for the kids that weren't old enough to get into bars yet. But I was fortunate uh, when I was younger. I always looked older than most kids my age. So sneaking into a bar at 17 was not a big deal. So as soon as I could, I did. And I would sneak into the Parliament House and watch the drag shows. And that's a, that's still around today, correct? It's still there today, yeah. yeah. The, they're still known for doing drag there, yeah. right? Yeah. When I was there, the star of the show was Miss P, and the glamour girl was uh, Lori Del Mar. We had Rita Beads, Belle Kincaid, and then I started meeting all the other queens from the Central and South Florida area, because it was a big... On pageants for drag. So when so after the encounter on TV with Charles Pearson, uh, did you next find yourself going into gay bar to see the drag live? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and, to, and and that was the Parliament House, then. right? And they were they were lip syncing, and I kind of like caught on to that. Thought that was interesting. I mean, because even as kids, you know, gay or straight, male or female, we all dance around in our rooms listening to records, using a hairbrush for a microphone, like we're a rock star. But I did it because I thought I was Linda Ronstadt <laughs> <laughs> or Helen Reddy. So, <laughs> so that was the difference. When you go to the Parliament House, who's the f- very first queen that you see performing at that time? Do you go to a show, or do you just walk in? There's happens to be a show going on. Well, a, a friend of mine told me they had shows, so I went to see the show, and of course the first person out was the MC, and that was Miss P. So, And I'm not uh, even familiar with Miss P, so did she do, she's just like a comic, oh, or... She, she was just a crazy, off-the-wall, very funny, very talented, and a very smart businessman as well. Paul was a delightful man, and just a lot of fun and a joy, and people just, he had this presence on stage that just drew people into him. And the Parliament House is in Orlando? Orlando, yes. So you see the show, and do you befriend some of these performers at that time? And you it, tell them, yeah. you want to do drag, or you've already... Well, I eventually befriended um, my friend Peter, uh, who was known as uh, Rita Beads. Uh, <laughs> she started out as, with a different name called Tish Templeton, creator of Rita Beads, who became her own character on top of a character. And uh, Peter was very instrumental. And that was in early 1976. And you're like 10 then. Yeah. And <laughs> in 1976, I was 17. And it was the summer of 76 that when I really started drag. And uh, it was 4th of July weekend, coming up in another week and a half. It was the first time my family went off to 
other families um, farms in Georgia and Alabama for the summer. And my stepdad finally convinced my mother that I was old enough to be left on my own for a couple of weeks. He left me car keys and some money and said, have fun, just don't get arrested <laughs> and don't total the car. <laughs> so we went off, a bunch of friends, we decided to go to Daytona Beach for the 4th of July weekend. It was um, the bicentennial, so we wanted to go have fun. And we were all little 16, 17, 18-year-old young gay boys that uh, a few of us were playing with drag. And off we went, and we decided to get dressed up and go to the local club that night. It was called Damien's Yum Yum Tree. And, and did you want to look like someone at that time, or you just wanted to no, be a girl? No, you just wanted to be a girl? Yeah, I just wanted to be in drag, be okay. a girl, because that's what I had seen. I really didn't know anything about looking like anybody mm -hmm. at that time, other than seeing Charles. So uh, we went off to that club, and the MC, and I think you've heard me tell the story on stage was just so sweet and so kind to us. Like, oh, we have some lovely young ladies tonight. I mean, she wasn't bitchy or nasty at all or biting. Very supportive. And uh, she said, y'all stick around for our midnight show where we have our annual Miss Firecracker contest starting at midnight. And uh, afterwards she came through the audience talking to people that were in drag and signing them up on her clipboard and got to our table and uh, I ended up saying, okay, I'll sign up because other friends said they were going to do it as you know. And... <laughs> Um, so I signed up and I was sitting at the front of the table and I turned around and the other bitches, it was like turning the light on in the kitchen and the cockroaches were like, whoosh. They just scattered to the winds. I was totally ghosted before that was a word. <laughs> and they were gone. And um, she said, well, don't worry. She said, we've got the girls backstage. You'll help you with your makeup. And if you want to get something else, we have costumes and come pick out your music. And everybody was going through the stack of records because we used LPs back then. Some queens had 45. <laughs> but uh, I found an album that I had purchased earlier that year and had learned every word to every track. And it happened to be a double LP. It was Bette Midler Live at Last. Um, and I said, oh, I, I know this. And she looked at me and she went, okay. And everybody went out doing all these drama songs. I think there were a dozen, I think there was a good 10 or 12 contestants. And most of them were doing drama songs. Some of them were doing like some fast disco stuff. A couple did Liza Minnelli because New York, New York had come out and it was really big. Or Cabaret or something I don't recall and um, about halfway through I was kind of in the middle of the lineup and I came out and did Bette Midler and did Dr. Long John Blues and the audience lost it because here's this young kid and I'm bouncing around with big boobs and just getting kind of grindy not vulgar but just like dirty and campy and I was the only one that did anything comical and they went crazy and at about 1.30 in the morning when the contest was over they had everybody on the stage and they announced the winner and I got the crown and I was crowned <laughs> Miss Firecracker of 1976 Bicentennial. And I actually just went through storage. You know, I told you I cleaned my storage out and I found a box and I still have my original crown. It's red, white, and blue like fireworks. <laughs> I still have the crown and this 4th of July will be 44 years. Wow. And that started the legend of Tommy that, Rose right there. That kind of started <laughs> it, yeah. And it just, next thing I knew, I find myself on the West Coast and I'm doing fundraisers. How soon after? I mean, because you, you're still developing an act for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I performed at some of the local clubs. We had um, one of the big clubs there was called the Palace Club, and it was an after-hours club out on East Colonial Drive t going towards East Orlando Union Park area, and because uh, it was after-hours, so we would all go in there. And uh, So as you start developing your act, you find yourself wanting to, to start singing live, because you'd been singing as a boy, and 
choir, I assume. So right. Did well, you I, find I, that you wanted to become a singer in drag, or it kind of that moved did, that way? That didn't happen. It, that came later on because there were really there was no such thing as a drag queen singing back then. You know, everybody lip synced. They all had dummy mics, or they just went out and did their thing. So did Rita Beads at that point continue to help you after the? Um, yeah, but she retired shortly after that, and we kind of lost track of each other. But another performer um, kind of came into my life at the Palace Club by the name of Wendy Grape. She was a big old Southern girl, and she, just like me and like all the rest of us, but she was just the sweetest, nicest person. And uh, we developed a friendship, and he was just a sweet man. And he kind of like coached and tutored me along the way and gave me pointers. So it was it was just wonderful. So some good memories. There were some tough Times. What year? So this is 76 that you win the contest. Mm-hmm. And then how soon after you start heading west? I came here. Uh, I came to California um, Easter, the week of Easter, 1978. So that would have been March, March, okay, so April. depending. Yeah. So are you thinking, do you have like these big lights of being a drag performer? Or are you like, oh, that's kind of on kind of as a hobby? Or were you pursuing a regular career doing something else? Were you? Well, actually, <laughs> I came here because after high school, I kind of began for several months and didn't know what to do and I was kind of lost and at the urging of my father um, and it turned out to be an okay decision it didn't work out great but it got me to California um, I actually joined the United States Navy Wow. Okay. and I came to San well, Diego based in San Diego yeah okay. <laughs> uh, because they said well you know you're here you know you're here in Orlando we you know we've got the training center right here in Orlando and then you can go to a school in San Diego I said listen if I'm gonna join the Navy and I'm gonna end up in San Diego then I want to go to I want to go to my base camp there for my training uh, so Naval Training Center San Diego I said uh, send me there I want to just get out of the state let me go now so they said okay so they made an exception and they shipped me off to San Diego I did my boot camp for uh, eight weeks uh, went back home to visit for a week and went back and started my a school and at the same time I started hitting some of the clubs in San Diego and at that time I was um, is it 78 this this or? is in 78 so I'm only 20. Or no, I'm 19. And in San Diego, what kind of clubs exist there at that time? Well, there were quite a few, but the problem is, is I was coming from Florida where legal age was 18, but in California, it's 21. So it was a little more difficult getting into a club, and I realized when I put drag on, I look older. So I or started they don't going. Charge you, or you can use anyone. Exactly, like <laughs> exactly. So I started getting up in drag, and I, that's how I started and became a regular at the Brass Rail in San Diego. And that's still there, right? Brass Rail is still there. <laughs> so, yeah, 40 years later, they're still going. So how long were you, did, did the Navy last? Um, it lasted about a year and a half. Well, actually, 78, actually till the beginning of 79, so about not quite a year. Um, it was just too much and that was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell and I basically came out and they said, okay, you're out of the Navy. Yeah. So I actually got an honorable discharge, um, but I was on a ship. I was on the USS Ranger and I was a radioman. And today there's actually, I mean, do you know... Uh, I can't think of his name, but it's actually a, a social media drag queen that's actually performs on the ship in front of all her yeah. her, her fellow. I can't think of his name right now, but all his, all yeah. the fellow. Uh, I, I I haven't seen it, but I've heard the about naval it. Yeah. people, and he's just doing his thing. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so um, but that was when I decided to try my hand at the Bay Area, and I got a phone call saying, "Hey, you know, we've got you know, there's all kinds of shows up in San Francisco." So, and uh, that was when I had started kind of breaching into the art of singing live, and I went up there. And 
they were having auditions at Finocchio's, so I decided Fino- to audition. Finocchio's was a very well-known, established. Yes, it, it opened in show the, bar, or was it? It wasn't really considered a. a gay it wasn't bar, a bar. Right? No, no, it was. It show was. Room. It, it was a cabaret, strictly a show. Um, we had it set six hundred people. And had been they had gray line tours since the sixties, right? Oh no, no, that. since nineteen. It actually started in nineteen thirty-four, and in nineteen thirty-six they opened the actual location at five hundred six North Broadway and Columbus at the corner of Kearney. And uh, what had happened is Joe Finocchio had a little bar uh, bar down in the barrio down by the uh, by the wharf. And people would come in. He had a rinky-tink piano. And they'd, you know, the patrons would just get up and perform. Well, one day, a guy said, hey, listen, I got a couple of friends of mine that do this that do this act. They're over in Oakland. And they do it dressed in, in drag. They call it Two Old Bags from Oakland. And they came in and did this comedy act. And people went crazy. And he said, hey, would you guys come back? next week I'll pay you. You're wonderful. So they were back the next week and he said, man, we just need more entertainment like this. People don't know what to do. And they said, well, we have a lot of friends who do this. And he said, bring them in. So he actually started the show at that original location at Joe's place. And it became so popular, that's when he opened the nightclub, Finocchio's. And it became the biggest, most famous nightclub in the world featuring female impersonators. And they were billed where the most beautiful women in the world are men. And some of the most biggest famous impersonators came out of that club. And the requirement was you had to sing and perform live. You had to have a minimum six to eight minute act. And uh, that's what what it was all the way through those years. It's still one of the longest running, you know, performance places that was not a gay bar. Right. It was actually a place where you could see gay entertainment was more billed, as you said, a cabaret. Right. And there there aren't too many standalone places that Mm -mm. are not gay bars attached to drag queens. Exactly. A lot of people think, oh, yeah, there are, but they're really... You take the gay bar out of it, there's very few, if zero, <laughs> out it, there. it was the equivalent of, like, the Lido in Paris or the Folies Bergère, you know, or, um, you know, Moulin Rouge. It was a cabaret club where people went to see the show. And it wasn't even that they were gay because they were all touted as being basically straight. You know, uh, oh, he's married, and so, the, you know, this, no, he's got kids, and blah, 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 which was all bullshit. But, it's still just a weird, I mean, people look at, oh, we've come so far but in a sense we really we ha- haven't. haven't when it comes to we drag and the art of drag it just it's kind of been pushed back when you people do the research and again that's one of the reasons why I want to do the podcast because a lot of today's performers there has not been any research they, they just become famous and they, right. they, they don't, don't know their history <laughs> history they know it's nothing so about drag beyond. history the only thing they know is like what drag came from D-R-A, uh, DRG for dressed as girl <laughs> on the side notes of Shakespeare's plays <laughs> that's where the word drag basically came from or that's the perceived conception because there really is no other um, in, in history we have no other point of reference other than that. And, and the interesting thing is so the drag entertainment just a, you know my theory with this drag entertainment is that it's so attached to the gay culture mm-hmm. you know mostly so which limits how many people because not like when we work here at Oscars you see how many heteros that come to our Absolutely. show that will never go to a gay bar. Exactly. You know? So it limits, it limits that type of entertainment. Because, you, because yeah. we are an entertainment destination venue. It's not a bar that happens to have a show. Yeah. So it's, it's just interesting because back in the day there were several other several places across the country that weren't gay bars and it's just they don't really exist well, anymore. The know? one that we all worked for for years. <laughs> um, not to be named. <laughs> but you know, and, and like the big shows in Vegas, you know, yeah. 
they have yeah. dedicated showrooms for that type of yeah, show. Yeah. Without the without the gay, not that it matter, it doesn't really matter to us because we're gay men. Right. It really still has that stigma where straight people don't want to go to like gay right. plays. Exactly. <laughs> you you know? know, and they want to see their drag on the stage, not up close <laughs> and personal, <laughs> at an arm's distance. You're fabulous. We love you, but don't get near us. So if you if, if for the people listening, if you've not heard of Pinocchio's, you should definitely Google it. It's oh, a, yeah. an establishment that was around for a very long time. It closed in 99, correct? It closed December 31st, 1999. And at that time, I was actually MC and headlining in Aruba. I had been doing um, the Jewel Box so, Review and Don't Tell Mama. So it led to Aruba. So let's go yeah. back to, before you get to Aruba, when yeah. at, at Pinocchio. Well, the first you audition. You San Francisco and you yeah. auditioned. So and happened? I t- totally flubbed 79 it. 79? That was in, 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 that was the beginning of 79. And I was very depressed and friends of mine said, come on, we're going to take you out with us. We're going to go to a show. I went, okay. So off we went to, um, it was uh, the Fairmont Hotel to the Venetian room. And I'm sitting there very patiently and they wouldn't let me tell me who it was. And they kind of like moved me, walked me around the lobby so I couldn't see posters. It was a surprise. And it turned out it was Charles Pierce. And I was like, oh my God, I was, I literally, I was crying. And these are friends of yours that happen to live in San Francisco? Well, they lived over in the East Bay uh, where I hit, where I was living over in Hayward. And uh, they, they took me over to the show. And at the end of the show, they said, we have another surprise for you. And I went, what? So on the way out to the lobby, they made a turn and went towards the elevators. They said, come on. So we went up to where, and knocked on the door of one of the rooms and uh, a very handsome man who I was introduced to and later became friends with, and still am today, with Kirk Fredericks. Um, and Kirk was... Charles's dresser and kind of road manager. And there stands Charles Pierce getting out of drag and shook his hand out and he said, I understand that you're one of my biggest fans. <laughs> and I literally cried in front of him. I burst into tears. He gave me the biggest hug. And we sat for an hour and a half and talked. And he was just so sweet and kind and delightful. And he became a friend and at that point became my mentor. And he kind of took me under his wing. And he had been around for, I mean, again, another name, Charles Pierce. You can Google it as well someone that had really paved the way for so many people because he had appeared on TV and in film. Yeah, he was the first to hit real mainstream. I mean, he was on television, on talk shows. He was, I mean, he appeared with uh, Linda Carter on Wonder Woman. He appeared on Laverne and Shirley. He did all kinds of stuff. And for people that, you know, are growing up, just like, you know, with the whole Black Lives Matter thing that we're going through, to see someone like you on TV doing what you do means the world. So, I mean... It opened doors. Yeah, and it just... And opened my eyes. It means you're okay and that there's something for you, you know, and that's what TV kind of, you know, TV was so powerful that, you know, back in the day when it was the only source for mm-hmm. us, you know, and um, Charles Pierce. So that's amazing. So you get to meet Charles Pierce, you know, in the late 70s. And, and he's and, the he's the one that said, you know, you need to start singing live. I, I They told me that you sing, sing something. And I was, uh, uh. so I sang and he said, you have a very pleasant voice. I said, but I don't sound like a woman. Well, Charles had a very masculine, deep voice and he looked at me and I'll never forget. I said, well, I don't sound like a woman. And I do. <laughs> and I busted up laughing. And he said, honey, it's not how you sound, it's how you sell. And he taught me how to do it in such a way that he said, once you get the audience on your side, it's up to you to lead them where you want them to go. And they will follow if you keep their attention. And that was one of the best pieces of advice that I have listened to all these years. And even today, as you've seen, you know, it still works. There are some days we have audiences that are like, oh my God, shoot me. But there's other days when you can walk out and basically break wind and, and they'll scream and holler.
dollar. But if you get them in the beginning, then they will follow along with you. If you keep them entertained and keep them intrigued and engrossed in what you're doing. And that's what a lot of these performers don't understand is you can't go out and make an act of, you know, doing a 30-minute concert of nothing but lip sync and just dancing and shablamming. You better have some substance behind it. So in, uh, I totally, totally agree. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> no, I know I'm going to get letters. Don't write me and I'm not knocking queens. I mean, it's great, but it's like, okay, well, I can do this number, but I've got to go change costumes. The one thing Charles caught me, he says, you know, I change costumes for the different characters because the audience wants to see that. But in a live show, it's got to stay moving. Fast changes, no more than 30 to 40 seconds off stage, but there needs to be something happening on the stage, which is why he always had a live band because they were able to fill that time. So he said, but you want to keep them entertained and keep that wow factor. He said, otherwise you start to lose them. So you've, you've got, it's got to be always changing and always fresh and something different. Someone that I know you know very well, you know, he said, you know, he wanted to create an act. You have to have an act when you hit the stage. You have to have mm-hmm. a package. And that right. we spoke with Christopher Morley. So it was, Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, was, but see, Christopher, as a lip sync artist, he had an act because he looked like a character and he was able to build an act around what Marilyn did. The same way with Logan Walker, who yeah. does Judy and Liza. Yeah. He has a lip sync act, but he has built an act around performing as that character. But if you're not doing a character, if you're just lip syncing a bunch of numbers still, and you're dancing... Just, you're still, they both have an act as that character. Right. Because as growing up, you can say, oh yeah, let's do 30 minutes of George Michael. But you realize that, oh wait, I have to build an act around looking like that person. Exactly. Not do a whole concert. And like, because like Christopher was saying, like, and you said just now, it's like people lose interest. So it's like, right. you just have to have an act, you know, a beginning and an end and sell it within that matter mm-hmm. of time and let it be. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And not go on for four hours and say this, you know, especially when you're just a lip sync artist. And even when you're not, it gets to a point where you're like, okay, I don't need to see anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> like, and uh, that's what Christopher said. And he, he'd worked with, you know, he was t- talked about with some of his mentors and the mentors were saying, you have to build an act around yeah. looking like Marilyn. You know? Right. And w- one that built an act around being a character, but did it live. And Charles introduced me to is someone else who became a very dear friend. And that was Jim Bailey. Jim Bailey was an amazing impersonator and a true impressionist. He did not only the look, but the voices of Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand. Um, he did Betty Davis. He did Peggy Lee. He did all of these ladies live, and it was phenomenal. And that's the constant names, Charles Pierce and Jim Bailey. And all the people I've talked to in our generation, those are the two people that are always mentioned. And they made a huge impact on the yes. guys that are performing today. And know? the third one in that same list would be Craig Russell. and Cana- I, Canadian Canadian performer. impersonator, and he was uh, most famous for his uh, cult film, Outrageous. Um, and he did Tallulah Bankhead and Betty Davis and Peggy Lee, and he did all these characters in the film. And I am very honored to be one of the few people who's probably still alive that knew all three of them. And if you want to add a fourth, was my darling Waylon Flowers, who created Madam. I mean, he took basically nothing. He had a puppet and created an act around a damn hand puppet that had her own television series. A, so, drag, a drag queen, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I was I was very honored to have known all of those gentlemen, and every one are gone now. But I have some wonderful anecdotal stories about each one of them <laughs> so throughout the years. At Finocchio, then, when do you go back and audition again? He coached me because he said, who do you want to do? And I said, I want to do Mae West, because she was my idol growing up. She and was Charles my favorite. was doing Mae West? Charles too? did yeah, Mae, yeah. too, yes. He said, but he said, you can actually really do her. He says, I do her more of a caricature. He said, you can do her as a caricature, but you've got a little more because of your face shape. He said, you can... Pr- 
really nail her and do her. So he coached me, and I went back and auditioned a second time later that same How year. How much longer was it? Oh, same year. Um, yeah, it was the same year in 79, and I got the gig, and I was hired, and I was the youngest performer ever hired in the history of Finocchio's at the age of 20. You had to be 21. So I could not come in through the front of the club. I came in through the side entrance off the Kearney stairs and went up to my dressing room and I stayed there and I went down to the stage, did my act and went back upstairs to the to my dressing room. Once you got hired there, did you find that some of the performers stood back from you or what, did anyone befriend you? Oh, uh, uh, well, no, several of them did, but there were a few, especially the older ones were very standoffish. One of the performers that I met at Finocchio's before I worked there was a darling man and and he helped me a little bit for the first audition, which I didn't get, because it was for an event, which is what they called the backup dancers, because Mrs. Finocchio, her name was Eve, so Joe named the dancers the events in her honor. And I'm not a dancer, as you well know. <laughs> I have two left feet, but um, a wonderful man by the name of Larry, and many out there listening, if you're old enough, will remember the name Laurie Shannon appeared on four episodes of All in the Family with Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker and he was the famous female impersonator that Archie was driving a cab and his female passenger had a heart attack and he gave her mouth to mouth and he shows she shows up at the door a few days later to thank him for saving her life and he's telling Edith all about this wonderful woman that he met and he saved her life and she takes the wig off and he realized it's a man in drag. And what year would something like that happen? Again, history making. History, absolutely. History making. This was back in the early set early to mid-70s, like 73, 74. And talk, we're talking about all in, the, all in the Family. Yes. Archie Bunker being the most... Right. So Laurie Shannon's character, her name was Beverly LaSalle. What a great drag name, right? <laughs> Beverly LaSalle. She'd be a stripper. <laughs> but she was a big, full-figured girl. And uh, and I saw those shows, and that... Is, and actually, I saw that before I saw Charles. All in the Family, Archie Bunker being basically, a, in today's term, or like a racist. Oh, almost. yeah, yeah. But, but he was actually... Opening to, to for the rest of the country, yeah. and he was everything but. But he played that character to get people to see. Come on, get over it. You know, you we've we've got to we're in this together. And Who was uh, the producer, the famous producer, did that show, right? That's Norman Lear. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, course, Norman yeah. Lear did it was that. A sure, genius, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I met Carol numerous times, and he came to Finocchio several times. And uh, so he, Beverly, he the, this the actor who played Beverly South, so he worked at it was Laurie Shannon. She was the comedian. She worked at at Finocchio. Right. And uh, uh, Carol Wallace had been the MC there for many, many years. And uh, when I went and first saw the show, Carol was there. But when I went into the show, Carol had retired. And I was brought in as a stand, kind of a comedy act as May, because Lori truly did suffer a heart attack and very sadly passed away in San Francisco at the home of another friend of ours, Pat Moncler, who was very famous in the Bay Area and a former star of Finocchio's as well. So, uh, and actually, Pat was one of the first trans genders that I met uh, that lived uh, kind of lived half and half but uh, had implants and was beautiful on stage. Uh, the other headliners there were Laverne Cummings who was a male soprano. So these were the people that, that kind of I went into and I was surrounded by this amazing talent. How many talent. cast members did they have? Oh my goodness, let's see. There was a 
cast of seven or eight, eight acts, each one anywhere between six to eight minutes, and then four to six backup dancers. Uh, we even had a male belly dancer in the show at one point, and we had another guy who did life-size puppets um, that was just phenomenal. So you joined, this is basically 1980, more or less, that you're a cast 7980, I went into the cast. And then how many shows a week has happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, these were the good old days when you worked your ass off for your money, but these were also the days when the money was crazy. We did three shows a night. We did an 8 o'clock. Each show was 75 minutes, an hour and 15. So there was an 8 o'clock to 9.15 with a 15-minute intermission. The audience cleared. In 15 minutes, the audience cleared out. A second audience was seated because we had gray line tours, and we would have several hundred people each show. And we would do... When you paid your admission, you could stay and see all three shows, and all three shows were different, which means every act had to have three solid acts, not just one. You had to... It had to change every show. And it was very difficult to come up with three acts, six to eight minutes, all live. But it's what you had to do. So we did the 8 o'clock to 9.15. The second show was 9.30 to 10.45. The third show was 11 o'clock to 12.15, which means by the time we got out of makeup, it was about 12.30, quarter to one in the morning. I very seldom got home before 1 or 1.15. And then and in those days, I had to be up at 6.30 in the morning because I worked the daytime job from 7 to 3. And what were you doing? Um, I started out working for um, the AAA's competitor is National Automobile Club and I went with them as a dispatcher and became supervisor and then uh, I went back to school and took some training and uh, eventually got my degree in business management and went to work for Davies Medical Center as an outpatient clinical administrator and I did that until 1989 when the big quake hit and things kind of backed off although we were busy at the hospital for the first month, then it got real, real slow. And I went to work as um, customer service manager and vault teller for First Interstate Bank, which was eventually bought up by Wells Fargo. I think, I mean, such a, I mean, you don't see it happen today. And I always tell you know, you younger queens, you know, having a daytime job, especially when you make really decent money as a nighttime performer and having a daytime job just kind of grounds you and just develops you as a human being and I think that's got slightly lost in today's performance because they yeah. immediately go for the cash sure and, the, and these uh, gigs no long term there, there and then yeah and but when you see the difference with the queens that have had a real job and worked you know nights yeah. as well as performer you see a big difference in the way that they've handled their life well the difference too and, is I mean I was living in San Francisco which you know, like New York is one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in and it afforded me to live a very comfortable lifestyle now, doing 18 shows a week back in those days as an act, my take-home pay was almost three thousand a week, which by today's standards would be what yeah. <laughs> eight, nine thousand dollars a week, which is unheard of. And and you know yourself back in the day in Las Vegas, that was the kind of money performers made back then. Those days are long gone. <laughs> we will never see those days well, I think again. Greed, greed sets in too. So the producers see this opportunity to make fifty thousand a week. They're not going to share that with anybody, even though it's right. the, the performers are really making the the tada on stage and mm-hmm. attracting everyone to finish. I say about people having daytime jobs you really see it now when the people that I hire because they, and they respect the drag gig far more when they had a regular job right you know I don't know why that is I think because they realize that it's here and there and not not this continuity of gigs yeah, from, it's, from point A to point B you don't have a gig six nights a week for the whole, your whole life it's <laughs> very rare that that happens anymore and I, I, I feel that I'm one of the fortunate ones to have have you, you know at least two nights a week sometimes three nights a week then I have my other gigs mm-hmm. a couple nights each week that were set until our 
shutdown, but uh, you know, it was I was pretty steady. But it's very rare. But a lot of these performers, they don't know what it's like. Also, they don't have the discipline to do uh, that kind of a show anymore. Um, it's I not mean, a pure, yeah, that's true. And then I think it, it is because I mean, you're going in like with our show. Our performers do the same number night after night after night. It never changes. These younger performers don't have that discipline. They always, I want, I want to do this. Stuff. I feel, I want to do that. I want. To, it's like no, you're doing a character. We're doing a set show. It is. It's like the, it is theater, just like going to New York and seeing a Broadway play. It is a set, rehearsed, scripted show. It doesn't change. And to me, I kind of find solace in that because I don't have to think about okay, tonight I've got to do this. And, oh my God, I've got friends coming, so I want to do this that night. And it's it's just not the same. And it creates it creates a magic that that you just can't really describe. That's why we continue to have people come back again and again. So right. to see the people, it just creates a magic that they can relate to and that they fall into an illusion that they really want to experience over and over again. <laughs> and the magic for me is how do I go out and do the same monologue, the same jokes night after night, but how do I do it? Every night I, I deliver it, it sounds fresh. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound stale, boring. And that to me is the challenge. And I'm not trying to be egotistical, but I think I've done a pretty good job of mastering that ability. And the longer you're around, the better you get in that sense. Sure. You know, it's like everyone's like, oh, I, one day I want, you know, one day I want to be like Tommy. Maybe tomorrow. It's like, no, no. The, 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 the stage time that you have under your belt <laughs> will take just that, that many years for you to ever accomplish what he's accomplished on stage because stage time is you can't buy it. You, you can, yeah, you can never replace or or buy stage time. It's something you just have to have. And unfortunately, with the way shows are today, I just don't you know the young performers. I, I don't think are ever going to see that possibility to have that kind of experience in stage. And it's just another reason why I want to do the podcast is there's so many. You know, speaking to Christopher and some of the other most other people I've spoken to, so much knowledge that can be taught to mm-hmm. the newer people that right. would they can learn so much from these people that have blazed this trail for us that you know like yourself and these older performers especially some of the ones that like Christopher is not even performing really anymore right. and he has so much speaking to him he has so much knowledge I, that's like a million bucks if you can tell that statement to someone else you know? well you know who else I've been speaking to um, a lot lately is Jennifer Fox Bobby Bruno mm-hmm. who's also been around for years and was a show host in casinos for many many yeah. years we had the opportunity to interview him already so that was oh oh, I'm so glad yeah yeah we spoke to him and uh, yeah we learned a lot and I just wish people would have uh, that interest in learning from people because it's not like what you guys did you know growing up you kind of just google it and right you know it's like you you guys had a knowledge and a talent far as succeeds what these people have because you had to create it out of nothing you couldn't just open an encyclopedia and say drag queen oh this is how you make pads (laughs) or this is how you do your makeup and this is how I contour you know they're just googling it and bam you know but you had to do almost pull out of we had to do it from scratch or or learn from somebody and uh, I just wish I hope it you know get some of these newcomers to actually reach out to some of the older ones and older ones have so much to really teach and then 50 years from now they're going to say oh this great guy Tommy Rose helped me or this great guy (laughs) you know Dan Gore directed me this way you know and and not we won't be forgotten (laughs) you know know, even at my age I'm 61 and I still learn things and you've given me some direction where I've taken things different ways and it's like yeah that's working That's Mm -hmm. and you've given me a couple of songs options and you know so I'm I'm still learning anybody that says oh I've learned that all oh honey then lay down and, <laughs> and close the lid because you're done um 
but a lot of times, you know, with these younger performers, even when they're in my shows or I meet them and they ask about something, I love when, when they ask because it's like they really want to know. I know there's sometimes when I've started telling a story and somebody, it's like, oh God, here she goes again. Here go the eye rolls. But it's not because I'm not trying to tout. I'm, I, I want them to know where they came from. Mm-hmm. They don't even know their own history of drag and these performers. And it's so vital that they know because I've always believed, regardless whatever, if your career choice is an entertainer or as a Broadway star or even certain races don't even know their history and where they came from. How do you know you're, where you're going if you don't know where you started? Mm-hmm. You've got to go back and learn your history and know where you came from respect, and re- to move forward. And earn respect for the people that have come before yeah. you and the people that are performing next to you and, and the work that was put into their act to create something, you know, and it's like people become stars so quickly with social media and they don't really realize... There's instant there's stardom so, and, and... There's so much more. After yeah. a while, the fire is going to go out very quickly so yeah. with those people. So it's And like, we've seen that happen already with yeah, a few. Yeah, so... You know, flash in the pans. Yeah. So Ed, after we were at Finocchio, for how long are you at Finocchio? I was there until I left. Well, I, there were a couple of shows I was kind of in and out of. Um, Mrs. Finocchio and I, after uh, Mr. passed away, we would get into spats and fights. I would quit or she'd fire me and rehire me. There was one night when she fired me, I quit, was rehired, came back, walked out seven times in one night over three shows. <laughs> but that was our relationship. But I love that old lady. I really did love her. Um, but one of the points I left, I did another show in San Francisco, which became very popular called Putting on the Glit. And we actually, because it was a new show, it was fresh, brand new costumes, um, and we had a new producer that had a new vision. Uh, theater or another cabaret? It was, at, it was at a cabaret at Sutter's Mill, downtown San Francisco, um, on Sutter Street. And we became kind of a competition for Mrs. Uh, for Mrs. Finocchio. Uh, it was a lip sync show. I was the only live performer as the MC, And we actually took the Great Line Tours away from them. Mm. So when I left there to go back, it, there was no going back for me at Finocchio's for a while. Mm. It took a long time to cover that bridge. But in the meantime, what lured her to get me back was uh, a faction of Lacage opened literally across the street and down one block, the off-Broadway theater. <laughs> and I went to work for them as the understudy for another great star, which you know was the wonderful Kenny Sasha. Yeah. And uh, Kenny Sasha, you can Google him too, but even Lacage two points, I mean, the Lacage Fall, was it called Lacage Fall or Evening at Lacage? It was Evening at Lacage. Evening at Lacage was the franchise of Lacage Fall that started in Beverly Hills, and we've spoken about that on many podcasts. And so there's another franchise that was in San Francisco, and it lasted a couple years. Uh, it only it only lasted a year. It opened up at the beginning of, uh, actually, the end of 1988. I went into the show in March or April of 89, and then October 17th was the earthquake, and the building was shuttered. But uh, I was brought in as a relief uh, MC and comedy spot for Kenny. Kenny's health was not well, and I hosted several times. Uh, and Kenny, I, Sasha, I mean, I don't know a lot about him, and you might be able to confirm some of this. You know, Kenny appeared in Bette Miller's film. I mean, that she was... He was in The Rose. Star, in The yeah. Rose. And uh, he was supposed... Because he impersonated her, and he was supposed to do Bette that's what I in the her. movie. That but is true. But he looked so much like her, I was told. That she, well, she came into rehearsal and saw him performing as her, and she went, no, no. She says, 
He's too good. And made they made this director made him Streisand. Made him Streisand. And someone else became Bette Midler. Exactly. Yeah. So, but Kenny Sasha was so talented and funny and and, and, uh, and the and she, again the Rose. I mean, all those drag queens in the Rose. What year did the Rose come out? I mean, still oh another mystery making uh, moment. Bette Midler's character goes to a drag bar. Yeah, I, and, I honestly I mean, can't remember. Brent would tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this you know gaggle of impersonators and well Bette, the three main ones was uh, was Kenny who ended up doing Streisand and I can't remember who played Bet. I really don't remember and then there was Diana Ross and it was Sylvester oh wow See, yeah. I didn't even know that Disco so, Diva who became, was one of my best friends in San Francisco wow. so that's why I knew Sylvester and, and of course uh, Martha Wash you know and, and Isadora, Isadora. I, I, anybody that was a Disco Diva in the 80s that recorded on Moby Dick Records in San Francisco we were a pack that kind of always ran together we were always at the I-Beam on Haight Street where I started DJ initially. Um, we went to the Trocadero. We went to Dreamland. You know, we went to Chemo's. Uh, we went to all these dance clubs all over the city for years, all through the 80s. And Kenny Sasha also uh, was, I don't know how close he was with Cher, but he actually worked with Cher in he worked with Cher. Vegas shows in Las Vegas. I don't know if... Right, along with Elgin. Uh, yeah, Elgin eventually came later, but Kenny Sasha yeah. and then another Diana Ross right. worked in her, this Cher back in 78 or 79 right. in Las Vegas. So. And Kenny also appeared on an episode of Madam's Place with you know, Wayland Flowers and Madam okay. um, as Bette Midler um, uh-huh. on that TV show. So he was on national television. Yeah, so Kenny Sasha, S-H-C-H-A, right? Yeah, S- yeah S-A-C-H-A, Sasha. So after Lacage, after the uh, the theater in Lacage, theater right. in San Francisco closes, then... Everything closed, and um, eventually when things started to reopen there after the earthquake, um, Mrs. Finocchio just called me out of the blue like we had spoken yesterday. Like, <laughs> there was never a fight. Hi, well, we've reopened the club. Club and JJ. Done, I think I've done that a few times with you. No? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and I have had a few of those. JJ <laughs> Van Dyke, another very famous impersonator in the in the area at that time, um, had become the MC in my stead, and he <laughs> detested hosting a show. He just wanted to be an act. That's all he wanted to do. I want to do an act and go home. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So he said, "You need to call Tommy back because I'm not doing it anymore." He says, "After this week, you better have somebody else in line." So uh, just wondering, uh, you know, have you recovered? Do you have your outfits together? because I can put you back on this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went back to Finocchio's and actually... Like 89, that, that was um That was in 1990. It was uh, early 90 when everything opened back up. It, we were closed for several months. The whole city was just devastated. Uh, we had damage in my apartment. I had even left the state for a while. Um, I was actually trapped in under rubble for several hours while I was dug out by friends mm-hmm. who came to my rescue. It was very traumatic, but it took me a while to kind of go back. Uh, but I did, went back to Finocchio's, and then in 1992, um, I had, that was when I was working for the bank, and uh, went back and received a phone call from a brick wall from Bottoms, Bottoms up. up. Yeah, very famous Bottoms Up in Las Vegas. Said, uh, listen, um, we are taking our troop, now this is going to get a little dicey. He said, we're taking our show to Atlantic City, and we currently have a show running in Bullhead City outside of Las Vegas, or and not Bullhead, in Laughlin. Uh, at the Gold uh, River Casino in Laughlin, and I want 
wanted to know if you would be interested in coming in and being the male lead. He said, you don't have to do drag. This is your salary, blah, blah, blah. And Bottoms Up was kind of a... I never it seen was, it. Bill, Bottoms uh, Up was, um, was, oddly enough, started the year I was born in 1959 at the Adolphus Theater in Dallas, Texas. And then it moved to Las Vegas. And it, to this day, uh, holds the record for being the longest-running adult comedy show anywhere in Las Vegas. Is there a storyline to it? Is it a whole bunch of skits, more or less? A very, like it's a bunch of sketches, like okay. kind of like Laugh-In. Oh, yeah, okay. Very reminiscent of a Laugh-In type show. A lot of comedy variety. All live, a lot of fun, crazy stuff. Very talented comics. And so I it's kind of like evolving, maybe ones. like Beach Blanket Babylon? Yes, okay. yeah. Okay. So uh, I went to do that show because he took the other company to Atlantic City to Trump Castle. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did that for a year. And so no drag at all. You're just no drag. Well, I did. I did comedy drag at the end of the show because we have a tribute to celebrities and we come out and spoof them. And I came out and can't drag with a big hoop skirt doing Carol Channing doing Hello Dolly. Um, I sung this song 985,000 performances, you know, and blah blah blah. But it was fun. So when they announced that the uh, show was the cast was coming back, we were basically out of work. I was like, well, all I could do was go back to San Francisco. And when I got back there, Finocchio's was still there, and another performer that I had worked with had stepped into my stead and they basically gave her a videotape and said learn Tommy's act and she was doing my act and she tried to change it to do her own stuff and it kind of you know kind of blopped and just dropped dead so they basically had her doing me and it's like you know what I've been gone for a year I've had all these great experiences and I'm back in the city and everybody's in the same place they were when I left I was depressed as hell so I decided to head south and that's when I hit LA and uh, was there for a couple of years. Now, now we're like in 83? No, the, not, no, this happened, this was in 92. Sorry, we're, we're, uh, yeah. yeah, we're in the 90s. I got so lost, this, <laughs> we're in the 90s. I know, so there's a lot of history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like 92, 93, and then I uh, started working with um, another very dear friend um, who you also remember from L.A., and we put together the Hollywood of the El Rey show, and uh, with Gypsy as the host, mm-hmm. I put in, I actually did all the wiring and put on all the sound and lights in that theater for the show, and it ran for a while. There were some issues, um, and then the show changed. Gypsy left. I hosted so the, that so show. Were you so there? You weren't there for, when you got back to LA. That El Rey show opened, or you had been there for a while still. I had been there for about a month when they decided to open the El Rey. So, oh, okay. And they came to me and said, "Hey, listen, you know sound and lights." They went, "Yeah." They said, "Do you want a job?" So I went in, and you know, while they were building the theater, I was up in the rafters wiring and putting lights. I always and sound think in. Uh, when I think of you in LA, I always think of Oz. So did Oz come shortly that afterwards? That came after. Okay, shortly thereafter. Yeah. Okay. So El Rey, I was done. I was out of the El Rey about '94, and that's when I started Oz. Okay. And I was there until 1999. And Oz was a was a gay Oz restaurant club. and a was and a, a supper, supper club. club. Yeah, um, and it was an 18 and over club mm-hmm. out in Orange County in Buena Park. Literally, um, when you crossed, you, you got down to the end of the street and hit the stop sign. I got on the freeway. It said L.A. County line, so it was right there at the border yeah. on uh, on Manchester Boulevard. Oz Rest East now on the Interstate Five now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was taken by eminent domain. But uh, I became uh, the show director there and ended up being manager of the club quite a few years. And it spawned uh, a lot of popular It acts. did, I mean, including... Raja was there. Uh, Raja worked for me. And also uh, another wonderful performer, um, Brian Watkins, a.k.a. Oh, Chanel. Yeah. Um, Chanel was not even... Uh, was still like 18 
years old, 19, and I was the first show he ever did, and he impersonated, he did wonderful, he looked like, um, uh, he did Barbra Streisand and Marilyn Monroe, and did a beautiful job, but he actually was, uh, ran Spotlight for me for a couple of events, so we became friends, and I'm so proud of him, he has done such an amazing job and had a fabulous career, he's so talented as a makeup artist and wonderful performer. Uh, Raja was there one night, and, and I was having a wardrobe malfunction, and I said, here, go introduce the next actor, and she didn't know what to do with the microphone. I said, just get out there and start talking. You you know all these kids. They're all friends of yours. So she went out and started talking. And when I decided to leave the show, it was because Nobert called me the end of 98. Um, I take that back. It wasn't. It was Jimmy Emerson that called. He was doing a Lacoste show in Biloxi, Mississippi. So, <laughs> so I went to do that show. But I came back um, in January of 99 to celebrate my 40th birthday at Oz. And Jimmy asked me to... Um, said, you know, the show's going to be closing, but Nobert has a show in Aruba, and Nobert offered me the comedy lead in that show. So that was when I basically packed everything up, left the country, and moved to Aruba until 2001, 2002. So I know Nobert ran that show, but they didn't call it Lacage. That one was the Jewel Box Review. He had purchased the name um, from Doc Brown, who had uh, the the original Jewel Box Review. And uh, And even the Jewel Box Review name, if you Google that, that a long oh my God! That, right? So much. They started in the 1940s um, in Kansas City. So the history of the Jewel Box is amazing because they they toured the world as well. Uh, very talented men. And uh, so, I don't know too much about it except that yeah. name had a long history and it happened to be in Aruba. So you're in Aruba sure. for three so years. I'm four in years. Aruba for three, almost four years. Island fever because I hear it's oh really my God. Small. <laughs> <laughs> and I came back here to Palm Springs. Um, well, I, I was homeless, and again, Brent Allen, God bless him, he was living here then. So he said, come stay with me to figure out what you're going to do. Came here, really liked it, found a house. And next thing I know, I meet the guys at Toucans. They had literally just opened in November. I met them in December and I went to work for them, you know, six weeks after they opened New Year's Eve as a DJ. And then in August, the following year of 2002, I start my show. And uh, coming up this August will be 18 years. I've been there with my show, but I've been at the club for 19 years. And then, of course, the name's going to escape me now. I know one was Danny, and then one was... No, it was Jason and Eddie. Jason and Eddie. Yeah. So Jason was a dancer, such a small world, was a dancer mm-hmm. at some of my Madonna shows because he dated another dancer at the right. time. And he was he was a male go-go dancer and stripper from Chicago initially. Is that He Jason was a pole or, boy. Jason. Or Ed, or Ed, okay. Ed, Jason. Jason was a pole boy in Chicago. Okay. All right. <laughs> oh, I got all the dirt. <laughs> That's the best thing about living this old, this okay, long. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, God bless them both, right? Because yeah. they, they both moved on. They both... Yeah, right. so they gave me a home and then you called me a few times, you no know, to, mm-hmm. to do come and do gigs for you and then you know when you started here you know god bless our gypsy you know mm-hmm. she when she was having issues or was out for whatever reason mm-hmm. so uh and then you i know you always said like you that mainstay the, main, the person that's reliable responsible and <laughs> that will show up and that won't uh, won't falter on stage it comes through you know and that's, uh, that's thank you yeah that's uh it's not that common <laughs> <laughs> maybe the faltering on not faltering on stage is common but just showing up is not that common so. right especially last minute you've always been there, so that's always so, been Even if I walk plus. in, if the show starts in 20 minutes, trust me, if I'm running in, I'll be on that right, stage right. in 20 minutes. Right. I may do my makeup through the show as it goes, mm-hmm. but I'll be ready. <laughs> With you back to Finocchio, who are some of the celebrities that would come in there? Oh my goodness, um, Ernest Borgnine, um, one of my favorites, and actually she was a friend of my grandmother's, um, Ethel Marmon, so growing up we called her Aunt 
Bethel. I mean, between there and Lacage, there's just so many stars. Um, Barbara Eden, um, two of my dearest friends we lost la- no, last year uh, were Carol Channing and Kay Ballard. I had known both of those women for 35 plus years uh, that had been in my life. And when I moved here to the desert, I reconnected with all of them and became wonderful friends. So I've, I've been very blessed in, in meeting some amazing friends that uh, and celebrities that became friends. Phyllis Diller, um, Ann Miller were both very close. I had just adored uh, Betty Hutton. My, I can't even sure, think sure, right now. Sure, so sure. People are attracted, the celebrities are attracted to that, some sort of that art form or that celebration. Yeah. I always call it the celebration of the female form. Mm-hmm. Is what drag's all about. I mean, they enjoy seeing guys that represent them in a truly beautiful manner. And I yeah. think that's what it tries. And kind of like take it over the top. Because mm-hmm. we do it in such a, gl- a, a way that brings old Hollywood glamour back. And I think that's what's missing with a lot of young performers is they don't understand the classic drag. They want all this new style doing top 40 music, um, coming out in lycra uh, leotards and bodysuit. You know, there's no gown. There's no, Except like, no there's jewels some, and hair. Yeah, there's some sort of drag evolution happening, but I've always said as a producer-director, it's like, but that doesn't mean it relates to the general public. So it's like, right. the drag can evolve, but there's still this old school drag that really appeals to the masses. Exactly. You know, and that's what, you know, when I direct some of the queens today in the shows, it's like, there still has to be, you have to have an act that's going to appeal to everybody. So, you know, you know, it's like, oh, I want to do the B side, or I want to do the C side, you know, I want to yeah. do the, this track that no one knows, and trust me, I've been there, George Michael, oh, yeah, I want to do all the song, <laughs> all the cover songs, no one knows it, and you fall flat. So it's like, right. you know, it's like, but... Uh, but you still have to create some kind of a magical illusion. And a lot of the young performers coming up now, for the most part, they learn their makeup watching YouTube tutorials. So they're all doing the same style. They look alike. The music style's all the same. Oh, no, I'm different. I'm high energy. So is every (laughs) other queen. They're all high energy. Oh, my God. There's so much to learn from people like yourself that have really paved the way. There really is. Everyone on TV is doing the same exact style. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even know what to call it. It's like it's a, it's definitely an art form. I'm not denying that they're not. No, no, it is an, an art form, form, and they're brilliant yeah, at it. It's just, but I think they're losing their individuality yeah. and they're and they're their it's not, and it's not appealing to the larger audience. So that's why they come. Oh, you know, I did this, I did that. I go, but it doesn't really appeal to the audience that attracting. You know, and, right? And it appeals to the younger generation, or at least the people sure. who are watching the shows. Or, or and, oh, absolutely. Or so when you think of some of the new performers in your head, which are the ones that you think will still be seeing and talking about 20 years from now? As far drag performers? Yeah, drag performers, yeah. Oh, my. Honestly, I, I don't even have a name for you right now. I can't even think of offhand. Um, a couple of the ones, actually, a couple from Drag Race, I can think of, like, Kennedy Davenport, phenomenal entertainer, entertainer of the year winner, uh, current Miss Gay America. Um, but with so many of these... Which gr- teaches you so much, if you guys don't oh, know about Miss Gay America. If you do America. pageants, you have got to be on point with a pageant. I mean, but I think what so many... You're not familiar with Miss Gay America or, or uh, some of the, this Miss Continental... And yeah. all these pageants can teach you so much. Miss uh, US of A. Miss US of A. Yeah. As you grow and evolve as a drag performer, these pageants are everything. I always, they can teach you a lot of things. Well, I think what a lot of these performers are, are forgetting is they're doing their numbers to appeal to a younger generation, which goes to the club, you know, and mostly in the gay club. They really don't span out into the heterosexual community in 
to the general public because they come to see these acts at places like Hamburger Mary or Toucans because like they have their bachelorette parties and their birthday parties and they come and scream and holler and get crazy silly but they're not going to go to a place like Finocchio's or here at Oscars where they sit down and have dinner and watch a stage show like you would see on a cruise ship um, I mean I've, as you know I've worked on numerous cruise ships as have other very you know, well known headline performers that work live because we can play to those different audiences because we can change our act but when you're a lip sync act that's doing all this high energy dance stuff you, you kind of limit yourself well I want to do a makeup change well you know you don't have 30 minutes to do a makeup change you know as you know like with Lacoste shows and Finocchio's if you wanted to do a character you had a makeup change you did your number you came off stage and you had two if you were lucky you had three acts before you're back on stage again so you figure you've got maybe 10 or 12 minutes at most to do a complete change and get back on stage and as an MC most of the acts in our shows average about three to four minutes in that time I have to come off the stage completely undress I change wig jewelry shoes and gown and I'm back on the side of the stage usually with a minute to a minute and a half to spare just because if there's a problem I want to make sure I'm ready I don't wait to the last minute because my dresser is here with us Eddie and <laughs> he's sitting here smiling there's been times when I've had a wardrobe malfunction where I've had a zipper blow out and I've had to pull that gown off and get something on quick and if it hadn't been for an assistant helping me get into that it wouldn't have happened if these young kids had to do that they would lose their minds <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't know what to do. What am I? I, I I'm not. Uh, most people know that I'm not a huge fan of, of RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't. I've only watched it maybe once, if once and a half at most. But I think one of the one of my favorite, and out of all the people um, that I know will be around, uh, extremely extremely talented. Of course, now that I'm t- talking about, it, I'm not going to remember his name. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, but he was a, a host before. Uh, we used to host some shows in New Orleans, and of course, it's not. Um, Bianca Del Rio. Oh, Bianca. Well, see, Bianca has an act. Yeah. That's the difference. And if you want to get to that point, I mean, um, see, now I'm going to blank. But there's performers who do have acts. Like in New York, my friend Marty Gould Cummings, over-the-top outrageous. But now she's in the political circuit and on city council, you know, in New York. But there's so many others. Varla Jean. Oh, yeah. Varla Jean is amazing. Never been on Drag Race, and she doesn't need to be. Mama Tits, (laughs) who has created a whole persona around the world and, you know, is a huge headliner down in Puerto Vallarta. Um, you know, and I've got several friends who do shows down there. So there are performers that do have acts that will continue on to have careers for a very long time because they've taken the time to basically um, nurture that talent and taken the time to create an act around their abilities and even their go. inabilities. It's like, okay, I really want to do this, but I know that's a bit out of my, my scope of ability, but how close can I get to it? But they do it in a way that it, it stays in their comfort zone and they eventually you know, branch out a little it's bit like I've growing. done with you yeah. but they, they're secure in their act and they know what they do and they know how to lead an audience and, they, and they, that's what it's about and their experience of working with all kinds of different avenues putting drag in all different kinds of avenues and understanding what I love the fact that you said they're understanding their ability building an act around their abilities because so many times you see people doing something that that's not you know it's, it, that's not yeah. what you should be doing right now that's yeah, the, like, the, oh no honey no you missed no, it yeah yeah I got I mean and the same goes for wardrobe oh, yeah. no that's yeah. it's cute but it's it's not working and for that's you why listening to <laughs> listening to directors or listening to people I mean when I put people in the, our shows I only want them to, I'm not 
putting them in the shows to make them look horrible because it's on me. Sure. So it's like when I tell you to do, when I direct some of these girls, and like I'm only doing it to make you better. So it's like, and well, it's, they, they it's, don't understand that you see something that they don't. Yeah. And, and you try to pull that out. You know, all those experiences build to these acts becoming better and better as they grow into you know long term. You know, I did. I did an interview recently, and somebody said, "What do you think makes you a good producer with your show as long as it's been running?" I said, "It's my ability to see talent and other people. Um, not so much to nurture it, but I see the potential and I draw them into the show. But for me, what works because unlike this one that has a set cast that's the same every week, the other show is changing. It's it, it's a living, breathing thing, and it's different every week. But it's my ability to know what each act can do, so that I create an ebb and flow, so I don't have like an act. I don't have five people in a show that all do the same thing. There's I have a high energy queen. I've got my top forty queen. I've got my Broadway baby. You know, so they all do something different, so that my show has something for everybody in the audience. If you don't like what you're watching on stage, give it three minutes. It's like turning the channel on the TV. There's another act that'll be out that's different. But at the same token, it's the same way with our show. Okay, you're not a big fan of Liza. Maybe you like Barbara Streisand. You know, whoever's coming out next. There's even in our show, especially in ours, because it's a celebrity illusion show. We have something for everybody of every age genre. I mean, all the way from Judy Garland to Lady Gaga mm-hmm. and everything in between. And I think that's what makes it so amazing and so different. And people can also relate to it. Like, it's relatable. They can see. And I think that's where the, I've always talked about this before, it's where the, the hetero men, the macho men mm-hmm. are not threatened by a guy that looks like Cher. Because, like, oh, he does look like Cher. Right. But as soon as that guy looks like a beautiful woman, yeah. you know, they push back. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know. But, but see, those <laughs> are ones, as the MC yeah, in the audience, those are ones that I go after. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, I'm so, going to play with this and, one. And that's how you break <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and break that stereotype and, and, and make them fall in love with you by the time the show's over. Exactly. You know? So it's like, so it's always, I always feel every time we have a show where it's like a, we're teaching, we're having a lesson for for people that are might be frightened by what they're seeing, you know, beyond the stage. You it's, know? it's not only our job to entertain the audience, but I think at the same time, we need to send them out with a different opinion. So we basically are educating them as well as entertaining. And that's how I always see myself as not just an entertainer and a show host, but as someone who can educate the audience. There's somebody, I can say something that they never knew about a performer when I'm introducing an act, you know, so so if they if, if they can take away something new, if I've made them laugh, um, even if we've done something touching and I've told a story and it's made them think about something in their life, which you've seen we have people tell us many times as they leave, thank you for that song. It thought of I thought of my mother, my grandmother, blah blah blah. If you reach the audience on an emotional level, I, I feel I have more than done my job. That's always been the key ingredient for me is is making sure the show touches some sort of emotional part mm-hmm. somewhere from in the beginning to the end. So Somewhere sure. in there. Because once we touch them emotionally, we've got them. They've got them. So when they leave, they leave with an uplifting emotional moment in their lives that, that we've just created for them, yeah. you know, spiritually. So. Charles gave me one of the biggest pieces of advice. And oddly enough, it was reiterated by Lori Shannon as a big stand-up, a big woman, a drag queen who does stand-up. She said, when you start your show, she said, the first thing you do is make a joke of yourself. She said, I mean, I don't really put yourself down, but make a joke because they see once you're able to laugh at yourself and you're okay with that you can do anything you want 
And that's the first thing I do. I said, I'm a big woman. If the girdle goes, you're all going to go with me. Who is one of your, who, like when you have a chance and you have a, you're on an off night, you're not working, or you take some time off, who is one queen that you'd like to go see if you were able to see them? Um, well, honestly, it's hard. Are you hard a fan to... of anyone in drag? Like, oh, gosh, I want to go see that person. Um, there are a few, but, I mean, they're not in the area, but if they're in town and performing. Uh, and I've had a, some of them in my show. One of my favorites that I just adore is Dina Jacobs. She just turned 73. She's a former Miss America. She's still performing. She sings live, and she is phenomenal. Trans, I just adore her. I think she's so amazing. Um, I've had her in my show, and it's I've never seen a performer come out, and she did Lena Horne, and did a ballad, and sat on the edge of a bar stool, just very casually, and just looked around, and just lip-synced this Lena Horne. But you were so drawn in to her presence. It was amazing. Another one that is here local, uh, Nikki Monet, amazing Broadway show baby, uh, burlesque style, does striptease, trans, so entertaining and energetic. Um, but I figure I've got such an amazing cast, of a variety of performers. Um, but, and I, I know this sounds horrible, uh, especially living here with all the entertainment that we have, <laughs> but I don't have a whole lot of nights off. So when I do, because I'm married, my husband likes when I just stay home for a night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, me and my husband and our dogs and our house, I want to cook dinner. So, and people think I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bitch because I don't go out. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck up or too good. It's like, honey, I've been in this a long time. I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm tired. Mm-hmm. On my nights off, Honest to God, I'm usually in bed, and we've talked about this. By 9 o'clock, I'm usually pulling up the covers, and these shows don't start till 11. <laughs> I'm done by 11. <laughs> I'm already Did you ever, a, a, a dear friend of mine said, Dan, your your life's path has already been set for you. It's just figuring out the way to go. Exactly. Did you, do you feel that drag was that path that was set forth to you? Or do you feel I do. something's no, still I, to I be do. done? Um, well, I think there's still more for me out there, but it's definitely in the way of drag and live entertainment. I mean, there's a couple other things that I want to do um, and was kind of looking at options. But uh, sadly, you know, the state of the, not just the country, but our our world right now is in such flux because of um, of what we're dealing with, with health issues around the world. Um, it, it has totally changed everybody forever, for good. Um, we never, we, we will never be back to what was. And that's why when I get upset when I see the people screaming, you know, when they call them the character. I want this. It's like, there is no normal of what, what you knew will never, ever be. We it's we have to find a new way to move forward. We can't go backwards. And it's going to require change. And as you know, I am the worst for change. I resist change. I hate it. I like everything in place. That's not the way it's going to be. So we're all having to come up. And I've told a lot of these young performers, you need to find ways to reinvent yourself. You know, clubs will reopen again, but shows and things like that, they're never going to be what it was six months ago. Bachelorette parties packed to the rafters, you know, with people running around and swinging. It's all going to change. So we need to reinvent ourselves. So I'm looking, what can I do? You know, I mean, who knows what our future is here? Of course, we hope for the best, but we have to plan for the worst and, you know, find our way 
we have to make a new way in a new world. Every day, every day is, a, is a new adventure, for sure. Yeah. And for people that, that don't know you, I mean, I, before we wrap it up, I do want to touch on personal health issues because you so oh, you yeah. so overcome something. <laughs> like, And there's, there's a handful of people that just have overcome like life-threatening situations and mm-hmm. made the best out of it. And yeah. I mean, you sitting across from me, you look like the perfect, normal, healthy, 100% healthy person. But at one time, a few years ago, you, it wasn't that way. Well, it started almost 10 years ago. Um, I actually had a stroke. Um, I don't know. I think we've touched on it briefly. Um, It did not affect my motor skills, which it does for many people with speech or ability to move. Um, Of course, you know, our very dear friend in Vegas, you know, she had her stroke um, and we've had her here and she's done an amazing recovery. Mine affected my, the right side of my head with my vision and my hearing. Um, I've always had hearing issues, but now as you see, I obviously, I clearly wear hearing aids. Uh, I'm They're invisible. You can't see them. Uh huh. Right. <laughs> Bullshit. Um, <laughs> there. I'm. I'm about um, seventy percent deaf in my right ear, and I've only got about thirty-five to f- maybe about thirty to thirty-five percent of vision in my right eye. Um, so that did affect me quite severely uh, with f- physical um, limitations. And then um, I had a very bad case of pneumonia and was taken to the hospital. And I was put in IC. Walked into the ER and they had me in a chair, in a bed, in ICU within less than 10 minutes at a local hospital and was in ICU for uh, a week and a half and then in a bed and it caused uh, severe kidney damage, which I had already had some because I've been diabetic my entire life. I was just predisposed to it. It was part of our family history, but it was well-maintained and controlled. The loss of oxygen to my organs caused my kidneys to begin shutting down um, and we were looking at having to start dialysis. So at that time, I had another surgery to put a dialysis port into my left arm. And two and a half, almost three months later, I woke up in the middle of the night, could not breathe, went back to the hospital with a second round of pneumonia with fluid around my heart. And this time, my uh, kidneys, I was in complete renal failure. And the port was not developed enough yet to use for dialysis. So they had to put tubes into my chest, So, which is why I wear high neck things, as you know, from the scars, but uh, started me on emergency dialysis that day in the hospital. And once... Uh, and what got, year is this? Um, well, let's see. This was in 28, or 2017, 2018. That start, yeah, 2017 it started. And then um, I started dialysis, um, hemodialysis, uh, three days a week, which was very exhausting. I, you know, when I was working here for you, I would come in, you know, on my Friday nights and just drag because it was a dialysis day. And then um, at one point after about two years, uh, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, they said we need to find a donor because dialysis isn't working. So we've got to do something. So I put a call out on social media and I was so overwhelmed. They had, I had 11 people contact the dialysis center and volunteered to be tested as a kidney match. Um, as it turns out, one of the first persons they tested was someone who was in my family but was not blood-related, and it was my stepmother, and she turned out to be the perfect match. Because if that didn't happen, I mean, death is not is definitely an option that would have, would eventually occurred, right? Oh, I mean, absolutely. 
I would not be sitting here today had I not had a transplant. Yeah. So I mean, just determination and yeah. and and Tommy's will to live and oh, because I wasn't ready to go yet. <laughs> I still got too much bitch left yeah. in yeah. me to go. There, there was moments I remember seeing you thinking, "Oh my god, I think he looks green or purple. I'm not sure." So it's yeah. like, you know, but, for moments I'm like, "Oh gosh, I hope." But the makeup happened. on it hit everything. Yeah, you know, I hit that. Well, you, stage. Look, you look like a brand new person now, and when you perform, yeah. it's like a brand a brand new person. So I mean. So, but, for any of those people out there that think that uh, a life-changing, you know, health condition may kill you, just if you want to live, you just continue. and You and have to want it. Yeah. So, fortunately, at that point, when I got sick with pneumonia the first time, uh, at the time, my boyfriend um, had moved out here from New York, Cooper. That was and on New Year's Eve. Um, it started the week after the first week of January is when I got sick. New Year's Eve, I had actually performed with our friend Jimmy Emerson in Vegas. And it was cold, wet, rainy, and that's where I got sick. So we, Cooper got me to the hospital. So a year later, after I'm on dialysis, we're in Las Vegas again for another New Year's Eve and uh, doing a show. And I actually proposed to him. And he said on one condition, he said, first year New Year's Eve, I came to Vegas to be with you. Second New Year's Eve, you proposed to me. He said, we have to get married on New Year's Eve next year. So, which is why I came to you on bended knee. I can't work New Year's Eve this coming year. So December 31st, of 2018, I married my husband, and instead of taking a honeymoon, we took that money and uh, put it into my health and into the hospital, and on January 16th of 2019, I received my transplant, and uh, here I am today, almost a year and a half later, mm-hmm. and doing fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Tommy. It was thank very you. enlightening thank listening you, to your story, and, and uh, you have a lot to teach these new generation. <laughs> well, we so do you. We so do. do you. Yeah, we all you do. Know, I just want to say on a personal note that a lot of people out there listening, if you know Dan, you know, you know, people are going to talk regardless. We all have our enemies, um, but we also have friends who will stand by us. And I want to tell you that on and off the years, Dan and I, we've had squabbles, but at the end of the day, we have a professional relationship that has turned into a personal friendship that I'm very proud of. And I am very honored to be a part of this cast and to be one of your friends and to have you in my life. Um, Having you and Oscars when I went through all this was so supportive and it really helped. I didn't go through anything life-threatening unless I killed myself but you know no it was just having someone like yourself too that was there for me when I needed a great entertainer and someone that was dependable and that would be there rain or shine you know and that and so it's not that's not common <laughs> that's not it's not that common for someone to get up you know at, at a no, moment's notice and be in drag you know and you've always every time I've called you it's been very rarely did you say no to me you've always said yes and you've always been there to save me one way or the other so I'm, I'm grateful for that and thank you and if you. we're open this New Year's Eve, I will be here. <laughs> I told Cooper I was giving you this one. How can people find? Do you have a website or a social media that they can find? Oh my God, I'm on social media: Facebook, Tommy Rose, T O M M I R O S E. Um, and those of you that do follow me also know that I do some online recipes because I do cooking, and I started my own new Facebook page just today okay. called "Bitchin' in the Kitchen." Oh, that's good. And starting this coming week, I'm now that we're shut down again. I'm going to start doing online cooking classes and sharing 
recipes, old Southern homestyle cooking. And then uh, you can also, you can Venmo me at <laughs> the Diva Rose. You can PayPal me. You can <laughs> For the recipes. I'm yeah. out at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, find me on Facebook, Tommy Rose. And in little parentheses, so you know it's me, it has my legal married name, says Thomas Bank, B-A-N-K. And uh, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, thank uh, you, Tommy. Yeah, thank I appreciate you. it. It was great fun. Thank, thank you very you. much, Dan. A pleasure. Yeah. And it was good to see Eddie. Yeah, Eddie, which we don't talk to Eddie very much. On, you know, he, he's my <laughs> producer here. He's the one that's handling all the technicalities. He's our stage audio. manager for the show. And if it weren't for him, I would not make my costume changes <laughs> on stage. I'd be walking out in a bra and panties every other costume. <laughs> that's why I help you. <laughs> he doesn't want to see it either. It's enough he has to zip it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everybody, and thank you, Dan. Yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Dan Gore with Icons Podcast. We'll see you next time. And remember, you all, my restaurant and entertainment venue, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs, where entertainment is on hold currently per COVID restrictions, but we are serving some great food most weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For a lovely meal and a lovely atmosphere, check out my restaurant, Oscars in downtown Palm Springs. We'll see you all there. Thank you for listening to Icon's incredible creation on stage podcast hosted by Dan Gore. If you would like to know more about our wonderful host, follow Dan Gore at facebook.com slash lookalikes and at Oscars Downtown Palm Springs. If you enjoyed what you heard, hit subscribe and leave us a review. A new podcast every other week. Until then, have an iconic day.